Good morning. And this morning's scripture is from Acts 2, verses 1 to 6, and verse 12. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all gathered together in one place. Suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind, came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? I want to begin with that final question. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? I grew up in a Pentecostal church. Now, every tradition has its strengths. And for Pentecostals, that strength was the Holy Spirit. We were the Spirit-filled Christians. So much so that we were even named after the Spirit's coming. Pentecost was core to our branding. Historic Pentecostalism is based on two distinct doctrines, which were understood to be rooted in that first Pentecost of the church. First, Pentecostals believe that after conversion, Christians are to seek a second blessing of the Spirit, a baptism in the Spirit, a special empowerment that would equip them like those disciples on Pentecost. Second, the sign that that person had received that baptism in the Spirit is the ability to speak in other tongues, just like the disciples did. So historic Pentecostalism understands the events of Pentecost to represent a normative expectation for the church today. Christians today should be empowered by the Spirit, just like those first Christians. And they should be able to receive this supernatural gift, an ability to speak in another language. When I was a young Pentecostal, I earnestly sought the baptism in the Spirit, both in private prayer and in public meetings. I remember the last time I went forward to receive prayer to receive this blessing. An evangelist had visited our youth group. After his rousing talk on Acts 2 Pentecost, he invited everybody who wanted to be baptized and to speak in tongues to come down to the front. My hand shot up in the air and I was down at the altar in no time, shifting from foot to foot with a buoyant expectation. Finally, at long last, this would be my moment, the moment that I would experience Pentecost. Gradually, the evangelist worked his way through this anxious crowd. One after another, I could hear people begin to cry, wail, and break out into the euphoric tongues, just like in Acts 2. The longer it went on, the more the anticipation grew, and I sensed that finally my time had come. As the expectation increased, I closed my eyes, my eyes and dialed up the fervent intensity of my prayers. I could sense the spirit rolling toward me like a holy tsunami, and I braced for impact. Before I knew it, 
The evangelist announced his presence by slapping one of his clammy palms onto my forehead. I shifted my balance to keep from falling backwards as he began to pray. He started by calling out to God for me to receive this blessing in a mixture of English and what I assumed was his heavenly prayer language. Then I heard the evangelist getting really excited and with a jolt I realized he was now addressing me directly. You got it, young man, he said feverishly. You've got it. You just got to start moving your mouth. Speak it out, son. It should feel like a tickle in your throat. Just let it go. This is awkward. The problem was that with the exception of his sweaty palm on my forehead, I didn't feel anything. No tickle in the throat, no flutter in the larynx, nothing at all. I never did speak in tongues, not that night and not ever. In retrospect, I suspect that final failure was the first real step I took away from the Pentecostal church. Looking back, it seems to me now that my Pentecostal understanding of Pentecost missed some important points. But before we talk about that, we should say something more about the background of Acts chapter 2. The setting is the Jewish festival of Pentecost, which occurs 50 days after Passover. The name derives from the Greek word Pentecostus, meaning 50. So we actually have to keep two different uses of the word Pentecost in mind here. First, Pentecost as the Jewish festival, and second, Pentecost as the church's reception of the Spirit during that festival. As I proceed, I'll use the term Pentecost primarily to refer to that second sense, the reception of the Spirit in the church. During the festival, the streets of Jerusalem were crowded with Jewish pilgrims from across the Roman Empire and the greater Mediterranean basin, people who spoke a variety of different languages. Verses 7 to 11 provides a list of those various ethnic and linguistic groups that were present. Interestingly, commentators have noted that this list of national and ethnic groups appears to echo the table of nations recorded in Genesis chapter 10. Presumably, the parallel is intentional, and this assembled audience is taken by Luke to represent all the peoples of earth. As we read in verse 5, the group represented God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. That's the setting. And it brings me to the first major difference between my belief about Pentecost, growing up, and the actual event itself. That difference is found in the nature of the tongues or the languages that were spoken. Now, I was taught that living in the reality of Pentecost meant seeking a private prayer language, perhaps a language that was spoken by angels. The idea came from Paul's discussion of tongues and other spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church, in the letter of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14. 
In chapter 13, the famous love chapter, Paul begins by referring to the tongues of men and of angels. This seems to be an apparent allusion to the Corinthian belief that one could receive the ability to speak in angelic tongues. That may indeed reflect the belief and practice of the Corinthians, but it is clearly not what is occurring in Acts chapter 2. At Pentecost, the disciples did not speak private prayer languages. Rather, they spoke the mother tongues of these foreigners. As the audience exclaims in verse 11, we are hearing them declare the wonders of God in our own tongues. The gospel is miraculously being brought to them now in their own language. Interestingly, the very first Pentecostals, just over a century ago, initially believed that the tongues they were receiving were other human languages, just like in Acts 2. When Pentecostal revival broke out in 1906 at this tiny church on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, the congregants believed that the end of the world was imminent and the Holy Spirit was supernaturally giving faithful Christians the ability to speak in various human languages. The reason? To speed missionary outreach to all peoples immediately prior to the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. So initially, when individuals erupted in strange-sounding tongues, folks assumed they must be speaking some foreign human language from Asia or Africa or perhaps Polynesia. We only needed to figure out which language they had gained the ability to speak. Once we did that, we could send them to that people group as an ambassador for Christ. But gradually it became clear that these strange vocal utterances were not in fact human languages at all. It was only then that the Pentecostal doctrine, the doctrine that characterizes the Assemblies of God, or in Canada, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, that it began to shift from a focus on human languages, like in Acts 2, to angelic languages, as in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. So this much is clear. Pentecost is initially not about receiving the gift of a private prayer language. And thus, as a young Pentecostal, I was incorrect to think it was so. Rather, Pentecost depicts disciples receiving the gift to speak in another human language. But here's the problem for us today. That doesn't happen. At least it doesn't happen very often. Nikki Gumbel, one of the original hosts for the Alpha Course, has stated that on a few occasions, in the Alpha Course, they have witnessed people miraculously speak in other human languages. In one striking example, Gumbel notes that a lady named Penny was praying in tongues over another lady named Anna. Anna was shocked to hear Penny praying in her native Russian. Penny, however, did not know she was speaking Russian, and yet she unwittingly blessed Anna in this language. Now, that looks like an Acts 2 miracle. I don't know what your theology is with respect to miracle reports of these kinds. Some Christians are skeptical that God ever performs such miracles today. 
We don't need to get into that debate. All I want to say here is that if those kinds of events do happen today, they are certainly rare and sporadic. Most of us will never experience anything like that. So here's the question. What should we think of Pentecost for us? Is it simply a one-off miracle? Or is there something still in this event that can guide the church in her life and mission today? In order to answer that question, we can turn back for a minute to the book of Genesis. As I already noted, commentators have observed that the list of nations in Acts 2 parallels the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. A long history of Christian commentators back to the church have found another intriguing parallel from Genesis in the story of Pentecost. And that occurs in the next chapter of Genesis, chapter 11. This chapter begins like this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. Then, as the story unfolds, we discover that this common language is becoming a pathway to rebellion. Human beings are attempting to assert themselves over God by building a tower to heaven. God responds by fracturing the linguistic and cultural unity of the peoples of earth. Once people can no longer understand one another, they cannot work together on joint projects, and thus the threat posed by the tower is averted. God's actions were presumably necessary, but the loss of a common language and culture introduces a new problem. When people don't understand one another, that can open the door to alienation, suspicion, prejudice, conflict. The problem is illustrated with a familiar word, the word barbarian. This English word derives from the Greek word barbaros, which originally comes from Greeks sarcastically imitating the speech of foreigners. You see, to the cultured Greek ear, the discourse of the foreign goth or vandal sounded like uncouth, unintelligent gibberish. So they mocked the foreigner's speech as sounding like bar, bar, bar. And from there, an ignorant foreigner became a barbarian. When you cannot understand others, it's easy to write them off as unintelligent, uncultured, immoral, irredeemable barbarians. And so grow the seeds of suspicion, prejudice, and conflict that sunder our world yet today. With that backdrop, we can return now to Pentecost. When reading this text, several early Christian commentators noted that Pentecost appears to reverse the curse of Babel in Genesis 11. Not, of course, by erasing linguistic and cultural diversity, but by meeting people in that diversity. As the fourth century theologian Gregory Nazianzus put it, for being poured out from one spirit among many men, the miracle of these other tongues brings them into harmony. This fact suggests to me a way that this unique event at Pentecost can be thought of not simply as a one-off miracle, 
but as initiating a formative reality that should shape the life and mission of the church down to today. As we live to be spirit-filled Christians, we should seek to be heralds of the reversal of Babel. And let's be clear, the divisions that separate us are not simply linguistic. Spoken languages effectively symbolize the realities that divide us, but those realities are far more than just language. Did you know that gender often separates us? 20 years ago when I was dating my wife, she would sometimes share with me a frustrating experience she had with a friend or a coworker. In an attempt to be helpful, I would suggest that she had misunderstood the intentions of the other person. And I would offer an action plan to resolve the situation. But instead of welcoming my input, she would often become frustrated. Why? I thought I understood her. Later, I read the psychologist John Gray's book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And I learned that my girlfriend, now wife, was not asking for analytical advice. She simply wanted me to listen and express sympathy. Although we spoke the same language, we were talking past one another. There are many other realities that separate human beings as well. Mutual incomprehension, suspicion, prejudice, conflict can be borne by many things. Different socioeconomic status, different culture, cuisine, age, among others. When I turn back to Acts 2, I am impressed by the ability to speak in other languages. But I am even more impressed by the result that 3,000 people from diverse backgrounds were united in a common shared faith. So that we read in verse 44 of the same chapter, they were together and had everything in common. That is the deepest miracle of Pentecost. And it captures well the mission that Paul envisioned for the church in 2 Corinthians 5. God, he wrote, was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeals through us. While early Pentecostalism tended to focus on the drama of signs and wonders, if we return to that tradition, I can find even more profoundly this unity of which I spoke. By my estimation, Pentecostalism began in 1905, when a young black preacher named William Seymour sat on the front step of a church in Texas, listening through the window to a fiery, charismatic sermon being delivered by one Charles Parham. Seymour sat on the step outside because he was not allowed in the church. It was a segregated church. Nonetheless, he was deeply moved by Parham's teaching of a church empowered by the Spirit and equipped for works of service. Seymour resolved to take that message to Los Angeles, where he started a modest church at 312 Azusa Street. And in April 1906, the spirit moved. Soon the word spread and people from around the world were flocking to hear the gospel message at this humble church. 
A contemporary of the movement, Frank Bartleman, describes the scene. Brother Seymour generally sat behind two empty shoeboxes, one on top of the other. He usually kept his head inside the top one during the meeting in prayer. There was no pride there in that old building with its low rafters and bare floors. God took strong men and women to pieces and put them back together again for his glory. The religious ego preached its own funeral sermon quickly. The revival soon caught the attention of reporters from the LA Times. They were intrigued by the charismatic behavior, the speaking in other languages, rolling on the floor. But in an age of racial segregation and prejudice, they were also intrigued, and perhaps even more intrigued, by the reconciliation of races evident in the early movement. As one reporter wrote, colored people and a sprinkling of whites composed the congregation. Charles Parham, that preacher from Texas, later when he visited Seymour's church, he was unhappy to find this integration of the races. But as Bartleman observed, the color line was washed away by the blood. That is Pentecost. It is the church that, united in Christ and indwelt and empowered by his spirit, reverses the curse of Babel, the confusions and divisions of our world, washing them away in the blood. I could end there, and perhaps I should, but just to drive this point home a little bit more, I'm going to close with one final illustration. The 2005 film, Joyous Noel, tells the incredible story of the spontaneous Christmas truce in 1914 on the fields of battle in Europe in World War I, a truce that broke out between German, Scottish, and French troops. The ceasefire began in an impromptu way on Christmas Eve when some of the Scots pulled out their bagpipes and began to lead their fellow soldiers in some festive carol singing. Then, from the opposite end of the battlefield, the voice of a German opera star responded by singing Adesta Fidelis, O Come, All Ye Faithful. It was a haunting rendition that rang out over the wasteland of frozen mud and barbed wire. These modest gestures of common humanity in a time of unremitting hostility culminated on Christmas Day with the officers of both sides laying down their weapons and meeting together to formalize a temporary ceasefire, to play a game of soccer and share a holiday of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We live in a world in which wars are still fought on battlefields of language, culture, gender, age, socioeconomic status, ideology, and on and on. The true church of Pentecost is the church that provides the space for that witness of a ceasefire, heralds of the coming kingdom, fulfilling the ministry of reconciliation, reaching out in the power of the Spirit to proclaim the redeeming gospel with those words, O come, all ye faithful. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Pentecost Sunday. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to indwell and empower the church for works of service, to be coming heralds of your kingdom, to bring unity and healing to a broken creation. We pray even today that you would fill us with your spirit and empower us to be witnesses to your kingdom and the coming return and reign of your Son. For your glory, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.